Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's senior national correspondent Terry Moran. And Terry, we're coming to you uh, at halftime uh, after the first part of Mueller's testimony on Capitol Hill. He has completed a couple of hours of testimony before the Judiciary Committee. He is about to go back uh, before the Intelligence Committee. And it is a fascinating day. It is Mueller Day, the much-awaited day. of the, We're going to hear everything from a man who's had all of the hopes and expectations of a of a party and maybe even a country thrust upon his shoulders. Uh, and and so far, Terry, what did we learn from this morning? Well, we learned that that Robert Mueller doesn't want to be in this movie, right? It's as if the, the set was laid out, the lights went on, all the actors took their place, the star came in, and it's pretty clear that he doesn't want to be in anybody's movie, anybody's partisan movie is what I mean. Both sides trying to get Robert Mueller uh, to serve their purposes concerning uh, this his report. And Mueller again and again kind of pushing away. That said, some points were scored, to switch metaphors. Uh, it is clear, uh, Robert Mueller's comfortable saying, I didn't exonerate the president on obstruction of justice. Uh, he did say that. Uh, and it's also clear that, that Mueller has defended the integrity of his, of his investigation and investigators from attacks that they're all a bunch of angry Democrats. He said in probably the most forceful moment of testimony that he wanted to remain unforceful, as quiet as possible. But he rose, he, his voice rose, and he spoke with emotion when he said, I don't ask anybody about their politics. I want to know if they can do the job. Yeah, and and I want to get through the, the, the takeaways as well, just to, to mention that in the back half of the show today, we've got a special conversation with Douglas Brinkley, the author of the, the new book, American Moonshot, looking at the 50th anniversary of the politics uh, and the political situation of John F. Kennedy's mission to the moon. Uh, but, uh, but Terry, uh, I, want to, I want to go through each of these points in, in turn, but I, I counted four big takeaways on my little tally sheet as I'm scoring at home. And I want to leave the optics aside for a moment because there's a lot of commentary on how Bob Mueller looked and whether he was up to it and, and whether he delivered on what Democrats wanted. Leaving that aside, on the substance, you mentioned Mueller saying that he did not exo- exonerate Trump. That was a big one. I think uh, him saying directly that the president can be charged with a crime, even on obstruction of justice, after leaving office, that to me was big. Directly contradicting the president on this question of whether he wanted to become the FBI director and seeming to say, whether he meant it or not, seeming to say that uh, the thing that held him back from actual charges against the president was the Office of Legal Counsel and their legal opinion. But let's let's start with the, the question of obstruction, because it was a big one that, uh, that, that the chairman, uh, Jerry Nadler, started right at the top. Take a listen. So the report did not conclude that he did not commit obstruction of justice. Is that correct? That is correct. And what about total exoneration? Did you actually totally exonerate the president? No. So Bob Mueller on the record saying that what the president says about the Mueller report, not true. That, Rick, was the best moment for Democrats in the entire hearing. Right at the top, the question was clear. The answer was clear. I did not exonerate the president. My, my, the report, the investigation did not exonerate the president. Uh, and that directly contradicts about a thousand tweets uh, <laughs> of the president and his constant refrain at campaign stops and when he talks to reporters on the White House lawn, he's, he's always saying he's been exonerated and he hasn't. And that might come as news to a lot of Americans because the president has such a giant megaphone, such a bully pulpit. He's been dominating uh, how many Americans, most Americans are understanding this. And his attorney general has been carrying that water for him as well. And here is the investigator himself saying, uh-uh, I didn't exonerate him. 
Yeah, and we've heard Mueller's been silent through all of those attacks. You mentioned his pushback on some of the politics, but that was as direct as he came to repudiating uh, what the president has been saying about him and about his report. No, he did not exonerate the president. I I was also struck, Terry, as I mentioned, by this question of what happens afterward, because Mueller has fallen back on the, the, the Justice Department policy that says that a sitting president cannot be indicted, but he was or charged with a crime. But he, he was pressed on the question of whether that would still apply to a former president. This is questioning from Congressman Ken Buck, a Republican from Colorado. Could you charge the president with a crime after he left office? Yes. You believe that he committed, you could charge the president of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office? Yes. Uh, ethically, under the ethical standards? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain because I haven't looked at the ethical standards, but the OLC opinion, opinion says that uh, the prosecutor, while he cannot bring a charge against a sitting president, nonetheless can continue the investigation to see if there are any other uh, persons who might be drawn into the conspiracy. Now, Tara, you can read a lot of things into this exchange. Ken Buck starts the question, you believe that he committed. Then he changes the question midstream and makes it more of a an abstract question. Could you charge the president with obstruction after he left office? Do you, do you read that as him talking specifically about this case? Or is he just restating the OLC uh, guidance on, on how to handle potential cases against the president. To me, it's absolutely clear, Rick. And, and if uh, listeners are curious, go back and read the transcript that Mueller, whatever Buck means, Mueller is talking about a president. It's the difference between the words the and a, the definite article and the indefinite article for all the grammar freaks out there. But but what, what Buck says is you could charge the president of the United States. And, and after his, as you pointed out, uh, the previous phrase, you believe he committed. So he's clearly referring to Donald Trump. You could charge the president. And as soon as Mueller gets a hold of the su- subject, he changes back to the abstraction. He says uh, he cannot bring a charge against a sitting president. Mueller says a sitting president, any sitting president. This is not Mueller dropping two years of neutrality on this uh, and 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 his insistence that he wasn't going to do Congress's job for it. All of a sudden, he just pops off on this particular question and says, yeah, I think, yeah, he committed the crime and died him after he leaves office. Uh, that's ludicrous. And it's clear from the grammar that he used in contrast to the grammar of the question that he was sticking to the position that he's had from from the beginning, which is that uh, he's not going to do the work of Congress for it or, the, or he's not going to indict a sitting president based on that opinion. And he's going to leave it to the country and the Congress what to do with the evidence that he did adduce around uh, potential criminal activity. And and of course, unless Bob Mueller is appointed to a new position, unless he's the next attorney general under a Democratic administration, it wouldn't be Mueller's decision anyway whether to go back in it. His work as special counsel has ended. Whatever he found or didn't find, that work is done, done, done. Him speaking in the abstract about the potential here, it'll get a lot of Democratic tongues wagging, but it doesn't change the way that it's going to be handled legally. And it doesn't change one other thing legally, and that's the statute of limitations. I, I believe we can go back and check, but if, if Donald Trump uh, wins a, a second term, the statute of limitations runs out on a lot of this. Uh, and that's a, and that's, a, that's a great point. So, yeah, we can talk about these as, as legal abstractions, but from a practical matter, we're not going to see charges against this president uh, stemming from this. I think that's abundantly clear if it wasn't clear from hearing it today. Uh, as I mentioned, another big takeaway, uh, Terry, is the – the, the direct repudiation of the cons of the idea that uh, Mueller wanted his job back. 
uh, and that he was meeting with the president in the wake of the firing of James Comey to try to get that child back. The president has said it numerous times. He's been echoed by other people in his administration that um, suggesting that Bob Mueller was back there begging for his job. And this added to the idea that there was some kind of a conflict of interest. Intriguingly to me, in the Mueller report itself, of course, written by Mueller and his team, Mueller doesn't take it on directly. Instead, he quotes Steve Bannon, a former senior advisor to the president, in, in saying that, no, he wasn't there to get his job back. But today, uh, Terry, he was more clear, wasn't he? He was. He was more clear on that. And and that, that is something that I think he's been struggling with uh, in parts of the hearing. But he was he definitely was clear on that. And and, and the other thing that, that he's trying to do, I think, is is make clear that that this investigation, as I said, yeah, I think is he came, Mueller came with the with the main job of reassuring the country about the integrity of the investigation. That's really what he wanted to do, I think. And, and I want to play another exchange because this has a lot of people talking online and speculating about, again, what Mueller was trying to say. And maybe another one of those political Rorschach tests where you can you can see in it what you want. But uh, he was being questioned by Congressman Ted Lieu of California, Democrat, a pretty uh, well-known liberal Democrat, who was recapping the case on obstruction. Take a listen. So to recap what we've heard, uh, we have heard today that the president ordered former White House counsel Don McGahn to fire you. The president ordered Don McGahn to then cover that up and create a false paper trail and now we've heard the president ordered Corey Lewandowski to tell Jeff Sessions to limit your investigation so that he, you, stop investigating the president. I believe a reasonable person looking at these facts uh, could conclude that all three elements of the crime of obstruction justice have been met. And I'd like to ask you, the reason, again, that you did not indict Donald Trump is because of OLC opinion stating that you cannot indict a sitting president, correct? Uh, That is correct. Did Mueller mean to say what he seemed to say right there, Terry? Well, he was asked, can you indict a sitting president under the Justice Department Office of Legal Counsel Policy? And he said, no, I I can't. And that's why I didn't. He didn't say I had all the evidence to. In other words, I don't think he put the the two plus two together in Lou's question, which was, here's all the bad stuff that the that that's in your report, and here's the OLC memorandum. So outside of the OLC memorandum, you would have charged a crime, right? I look, once again, it's like this is a guy who has become famous for not saying things. And offhandedly, just kind of by the way of an a, an answer to one of the mid-level Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee, he's gonna change his entire uh, process is his, his, his tone, his position. I, I think he would have been more careful around that, and and I, I, th- I think he was. Once again, he was asked, "Can you, you didn't indict Donald Trump because of the OLC policy that you can't indict a sitting president?" And he and he said, "Yeah, not not, not that I had the evidence to and didn't, but I just." Uh, you know, I, I can't. I wouldn't have gone forward. I have a feeling that he's going to have to clean it up in some way because the question was the reason. And if the, and if indeed the reason was the, the OLC policy, the clear suggestion in the way that it was built up in that question is that he would have otherwise. And that would be new. That would be that news. would be brand new. But I want and maybe I'm completely wrong. But it, it, this is a guy who wouldn't go forward on that about a thousand times before. And he picks this particular moment. Without any fanfare, just to slip it in in a three-word answer? I don't know. I, I think I, I, you're probably right. We'll, we'll leave leave it to the man himself to, to try to explain. And the man himself was 
put on trial in a sense today. It seemed to me, Terry, that Republicans were trying to make Mueller trying to trying to take down his credibility, trying to trying to destroy uh, the man's reputation, um, trying to get him caught up often in his own words, reading portions of the report back to him and hoping uh, that he would contradict himself. Um, I think it's fair to say this was not Mueller with his best fastball. And uh, there, there were times where he did seem to he, he needed things to be repeated to him often. He seemed to um, he, he did contradict a few times and have to clean up some things that, that were in the report. Uh, the, leaving that aside, to, to my mind, Terry, the way that Ted Lieu just just explained what Mueller did find is still very powerful. And I, I'm loath, just as it, from an analytical point of view, to ascribe the whole thing as an, as an optics disaster for Democrats because, because Robert Mueller didn't have all his facts or statements straight every step of the way. Right. Uh, uh, optics is is optics. I, I do think that that the Democrats staged this hearing, talking about optics, in order to build support for a possible impeachment. And to do that, they did need a strong performance on their stage uh, by the investigator. And he because partly because he has lost a couple of steps, as people around him have 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 noticed, his mind is still quite sharp. He just he's slowed down a little bit. He can't quite find the right word uh, when he wants to. That the the country might not be able to rally behind the Democrats' cause, partly because they didn't quite lay it out with uh, flowing crystalline clarity. They do think that they made headway. But here's the thing. Here's the real thing. American people have a very good understanding of what impeachment is for and what it's not for, if you look at our history. And this is a case where there is evidence of wrongdoing about the president of the United States uh, that you can get a thousand prosecutors to say I would indict, and I guarantee you Trump could find a thousand prosecutors to say you wouldn't indict. For to indict a president, to indict any any American, uh, you have to have evidence that you believe is beyond a reasonable doubt that the crime had been committed. And the Democrats have might have that; they might not have that. Trump could certainly start stand before a jury and say there's a plausible explanation for my conduct, and that's that I know that I did not conspire. I committed no crime with this Russia stuff, and I had been elected by the American people through their constitution to be president, and this was all frustrating for me. This was driving me crazy, and of course I, wa- I was angry, and that's why I was saying and doing these things. So is it a strong obstruction case? I, I'll leave that to, to stronger, to better legal experts, but I do know – uh, that at the end of the day, yes, it's not all about optics, but you need leadership. The, the the party that wants to impeach the president has got to lead the country to that. And you need strong evidence and you need, frankly, to tell the country a story that is that is com- so compelling that they will use that most drastic instrument in the entire Constitution, the anti-democratic in some ways uh, means of impeachment and conviction and removal from office. If the Democrats are just using it because they want to dirty Trump up, well, you know, hit the hustings in some ways. But uh, impeachment remains, I think, a very, very long shot, and not just because of optics. Yeah, I, th- I, it, I think that's right. It was, we know, a political long shot. There was a vote just last week. Ninety-five Democrats voted to proceed with impeachment proceedings. This was in the wake of the racist comments that the president directed mm-hmm. at uh, the four members of Congress. But, of course, it's all wrapped up in uh, in the underlying um, issues that have been raised by the Russia investigation and by Mueller. It, it struck me that de- Democrats were dancing around the term for a lot of the day. They, they recognized that 
this is the probably the last best shot at impeachment. Uh, but they didn't want to go there directly for the most part. There were several members of Congress, including some on the record for impeachment, that would say it's imperative for uh, Congress to hold this president accountable. Of course, it would be in this same committee, in the House Judiciary Committee, that impeachment would start. I was struck uh, toward the end of the of the morning session at the Judiciary Committee, Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, a Democrat from Texas, mm-hmm. w- was trying to draw this specifically out of Robert Mueller. Take a listen. Director Mueller, at your May 29th, 2019 press conference, you explained that, quote, the opinion says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing, end quote. That process other than the criminal justice system for accusing a president of wrongdoing, is that impeachment? Uh, I'm not going to comment on that. Now, Terry, I don't want to be obtuse here, but, but what else could it be? I mean, the, the Constitution actually isn't that long a document. You can, you can read it in 20 minutes or it's so. It's worth a read. It's it is yeah. worth a read, but there's, th- that's it, right? There's nothing else. There's not the, some kind of other secret remedy that he might have been referencing. He didn't want to say the word impeachment. He didn't want to agree that he was referencing impeachment, but that's what we're talking about here. That's right. So w- once again, the, the law uh, and the way the Constitution and the way the Justice Department and the uh, Office of Legal Counsel, OLC, opinion has uh, understood it, puts somebody like Mueller in a quandary. What if you find evidence of crime and and you are uh, the sitting president cannot be impeached under Justice Department policy, which reaches back across Democratic and Republican presidencies for many years now? What do you do with it? Well, there are other constitutional processes. You you put it before the country and you let the country make up its mind. I I would like to say two things. First, contrast the way Mueller handled that question, which is I'm not going to get anywhere near that, even though, as you point out, there's no other answer. That's the only other constitutional process for this kind of stuff. Uh, With the way Ken Starr, who was, uh, in his kind of slick, unctuous way, a a virulent partisan when he testified before Congress for the impeachment of Bill Clinton, uh, you see just how different a character, and I mean that in every sense of the word, uh, Robert Mueller is. And then the, then the other thing is that you, you mentioned that 95 Democrats uh, are on the record supporting impeachment. And once that might have been almost a part of the proof, you know, that, that if you get substantial support for impeachment in Congress, that that means that that there must be truth to it to some degree. But it's also a reflection of how gerrymandered Democratic districts are, too. They got nothing to fear in those districts. Right. There, there, there right. are there aren't any swing voters in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's district. Zero. And that is true in plenty of Democratic districts. We talk about Republican gerrymandering. Well, the Democrats have benefited from it, too, in those states where they control uh, the legislatures. And so uh, in some ways, you know, Nancy Pelosi is stuck between Democrats who never have to worry about getting reelected with the ones who gave her the majority who do. Yeah. And and impeachment does not seem any closer to being a reality as a result of Bob Mueller Day. We should we should note uh, breaking news here as we're recording. uh, uh, Bob Mueller has started his session with the House Intelligence Committee. And as Terry Moran predicted, um, he has had to clarify his response to Congressman Liu. Uh, He said that he wants to go back to that. And and he acknowledges, quote, that is not the correct way to say it. As we say in the report, and as I said at the opening, we did not reach a determination as to whether the president committed the crime. And with that, he started taking questions. So uh, he recognized that he, on the, the letter of the transcript, went a little bit further than he actually intended. Right. He stepped out in front of the curtain in a show he doesn't want to be in, as I keep saying. And, and, and that's true. Uh, you know, the, 
I've seen a lot of people online saying, look, 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 even Mueller is saying uh, that the president can be indicted or he would have indicted the president. Mueller is not saying that and he's not going to. So the case that Democrats have to make is here are the facts. And on the facts, it warrants this extreme constitutional uh, measure. And and that remains a very strong challenge for the American people, especially on obstruction. Look, obstruction, especially when there's no underlying crime. You know, Bill Clinton was charged with obstruction, but really he was charged with perjury, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, uh, lying about it, lying yeah. about it, and and perjury is something everybody understands. It's clear as a bell, and and uh, there was enough uh, to go on that. And obstruction kind of came along in the wake of the momentum of the perjury thing. Richard Nixon was charged with obstruction because we heard him on tape, right? I mean, kind of ordering crimes, uh, and there was plenty of evidence from his associates that he was trying to obstruct justice. This is one where you kind of really have to bore into it. That's why I think the hearing on the Kremlin and its role, its attack on American democracy and its connections, not conspiracy, that wasn't found, but its connections with the Trump campaign and how willing the Trump campaign was to do business with our enemy and how willing still to this day, just a couple of weeks ago, Donald Trump sitting there smirking with Vladimir Putin. Oh, did you meddle? Oh, okay, don't meddle. Kind of making a joke of this of this very serious uh, problem, the uh, attack that the United States faces, that has more resonance with with most Americans, I think, than the obstruction thing, where I don't think they moved down the, the ball down the field very far. And Mueller made a point of that, of pointing out specifically that he considers that to be an imminent and real threat, up up with the biggest threats that he's ever experienced in mm. his time as a as a federal prosecutor. And, and I should note, Terry, your point about perjury. That is not an issue for President Trump because he never talked to Mueller. He didn't have the opportunity to perjure himself. In fact, his lawyers were very concerned about the possibility that he would lie if he was put under oath. Uh, We heard directly from Mueller today that he tried for a long time, for a year. And the president would say publicly that he wanted to talk to Mueller, that he looked forward to it 100 percent, was willing to do it. That conversation never happened. And that may have been the legal advice that saved the presidency. Uh, Without question, it certainly helped Donald Trump a lot because everybody knows when Donald Trump starts talking, look, it it could be true, it could be not true, it could be exaggeration, it could be salesmanship, it could be what he once called, I think, what what did he call it, Uh, productive exaggeration or 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 something <laughs> like that he he doesn't tell the truth and you know his, his many of his supporters know that but they get what he means well it's one thing in politics to be making an argument and you say well really there were 10 million uh, you know 10,000 people charging the border when over, or, there were only 300 or whatever uh, people get that you're trying to make a point under oath in a criminal investigation you you got to you got to Stop that. And his lawyers did the right thing by him by saying you would not do well under oath in a, in an investigation like this. It's just not a good idea for you. And as a result, the investigation was hampered. No question about it. That's right. And, and Mueller himself acknowledges. And Terry, our thanks to you for sticking with us here. We'll let you get back to the hearing. And we're going to take a quick break right here. And when we're back, a conversation with Douglas Brinkley about his new book, American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. And it's my pleasure to welcome here to Powerhouse Politics, Douglas Brinkley, the renowned historian, uh, one of the best writers and historians of his generation or any generation, the author of a brand new book, American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. Uh, And I want to start, Doug, with kind of the broad scope here. We've seen a lot of remembrances around the 50th anniversary of the uh, of the moonwalk. 
uh, and a lot of fond reminiscences of what that time meant in American history. And I'm just curious your overall take about how we are understanding that moment in, in light of where we are in 2019. What does it mean 50 years later? Well, as I write in my book, the term moonshot um, used to mean about going to the moon, John F. Kennedy's moonshot. But today, the very word means American excellence and how can we get out of the political morass we're in right now, where Democrats and Republicans are just feuding and um, name-calling and belittling each other. There's a hunger for a unity when we do something large as Americans together short of war. And so I found out by writing about, you know, the space race and Neil Armstrong going on the moon that a lot of people are hungering for an Earth shot, that the time is now to focus on climate change and try to do something large. Or if you're Joe Biden, you were talk about a cancer shot. Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins, two of the Apollo 11 astronauts, think the new moon shot is a Mars shot and that we need to go to Mars for scientific reasons, for reasons of the spirit of exploration, but also to unify our country. But alas, all of this takes congressional appropriations, and I know that's some of the more boring parts of history. But if John F. Kennedy didn't figure out how to get $25 billion out of Congress, there would have been no going to the moon. So to do something large in America, it needs big-time funding. I want to ask about the set of circumstances that led to this, because you mentioned Kennedy, and you write um, quite quite well the history of uh, John F. Kennedy conceptualizing this and being interested. He was kind of a, a, a science nerd from the beginning, and he was interested in the, the scientific developments around it. He also saw the symbolic importance of it for the American people, for his presidency in outlining the vision. And, and the, it seemed like this was a confluence of circumstances where you had pop culture, politics, uh, the Cold War, everything converge on the moment and the man who then charted that vision. It seemed like there was a, a whole lot of circumstances that had to come together. That is a wonderful way of saying it, a, um, a confluence of circumstances. That's what it was. I mean, um, John F. Kennedy had to be a president who was born in the so-called um, aviation age. He was born in 1917, so his whole life had been about looking upwards, um, you know, with stories about breaking sound barriers or uh, supersonic jets. Um, space was um, part of that. But also the computer chip, um, Texas Instruments developed the main microchip for the computer in the late 1950s. Radar had gotten developed during World War II. Um, all of these things just kind of came together and a common foe in the Soviet Union that was just um, scoring victories in space, things like putting the first ICBM up or um, you know, the Sputnik satellite in, in 1957, uh, the first creature in space like a dog, the first human in space, Yuri Gagarin. Um, and John F. Kennedy was a cold warrior. He was a hawk. He wanted to show that America's system of government was better than the Kremlin's. And uh, this and other reasons, it all kind of came together, but Kennedy had the fortitude to, to take it. He saw the, that what was, what was kind of developing around him. I mean, 1962, the World's Fair in Seattle was planned to have a space needle at its center. I mean, space was in the atmosphere, and Kennedy galvanized the country. He felt that's what was necessary and did what great leaders do, unify the country and then move forward. 
Does it happen without the Cold War, without the military rivalry with the Soviet Union, the cultural rivalry with the Soviet Union? Does does any of this happen, in your opinion, in your studying of this, the $180 billion in 2019 dollars that, that it took, does it happen without knowing that there was this kind of existential rivalry going on with uh, with an enemy? I don't believe so. Without the Soviet Union, we never would have ponied up that amount of money. Everybody's looking for, you know, government dollars. Um, the thing, though, that, you know, because of the Soviet space race, Jack Kennedy knew I could lead my Democrats. My Democrats are going to follow me if I say we're going to go to the moon. But the Republicans may not because they're fiscal conservatives back then. But Kennedy realized, what could a Republican senator from Oklahoma say if I asked them, oh, so you don't want to beat the Soviets to the moon? The answer would be, well, I didn't say that, Mr. President. I, well, then you're weak on communism. You, you, want to, you don't want, care about winning the Cold War. So Kennedy, by having, keeping the Democrats together, had a way to force Republicans into coming on board, hence bipartisan unity, which brought a lot of big dollars to NASA. So I want to ask you about this this concept of the moonshot. First of all, the history that I, I was fascinated by, that, that we have Vince Scully to thank for the term <laughs> itself. I never knew that. Well, that's right. I mean, it comes out of the Los Angeles Dodgers um, team when a hitter named a slugger, Wally Moon, who would hit these towering home runs um, over in the Coliseum that were known as moonshots. And um, then Scully on radio would do a dramatic, you know, there it goes over the left field fence, a moonshot. And the word caught on. NASA started using it in early 1962 to call the Manned Space Center in Houston the uh, Moonshot Command Post. Uh, Eventually, of course, now it's the Johnson Manned Space Center after LBJ. But uh, alas, the word moonshot made its way into 1960s parlance. Fascinating history. I love that. And then the way that it is used now, you mentioned the cancer moonshot. That was the term that Joe Biden gave his cancer initiative. President Obama gave him the charge around that. I wonder if you mentioned the possibility of a cancer moonshot, of a climate moonshot. Do you see the other forces marshalling in a way that would allow that to be possible? Or does it take political leadership to recognize that and say, here's the issue, here is the mission, and, and here is how we can start to bring those pieces together. I asked that exact question to Neil Armstrong, and he, whether he was disappointed we hadn't already gone back to the moon in a real way recently, or, you know, or whether we pushed forward to Mars, and he rightfully said it just takes everything has to work right politically. There can't be uh, loose wires anywhere, meaning we probably, being a competitive society, need China to be beating us going to the moon or going to Mars. We have to feel a sense of competition, something to speed up the funding. Then we're doing what the 50th anniversary did. We are opening young imaginations. I, I've been at a number of events at kind of discovery greens in cities where all these kids are coming out, all excited about space exploration. So I think we're starting to get there. We're having big movies about it again. Um, you know, it's kind of we're, we're, we're getting there. But um, alas, it's going to take presidential leadership. It's going to take a president who really prioritized that. Uh, president Trump's big, big issue, that the one offer, if you like, was to build a wall between the United States and Mexico. Uh, whatever you think of that, that's a disuniting public works initiative. Um, you're having half of 
America rejected. So you've got to find um, going to Mars being something that everybody's aboard for the ride. I thought NASA right now has been cleverly talking about the first, the next visit to the moon. It'll be women astronauts going to the moon, and we've had twelve white male moonwalkers, but no, no woman astronaut. That might get the public excited to have the first woman on the moon. Um, you've got to do things that excite the population, so they're demanding, let's do it, let's do it. And then you have to have a president who's willing to prioritize that as something that he wants to accomplish uh, and prioritize during his administration. It feels to me uh, that, that presidential leadership since Kennedy has been has treated space as kind of a one-off. That there's a there's a periodic enchantment with the idea of being a president who could do what Kennedy did and bring us to Mars. Say, uh, George W. Bush did this uh, and, and, and outlined it. I remember he being kind of ridiculed in the press for for talking about it. Then it sort of went away. We've seen Vice President Pence take a particular interest in in, in space, but as you mentioned, it's not the big issue that uh that 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 any leadership is centering on it, it, key insight from your book to me was that kennedy saw all sides of this and saw the importance of going to the moon from a lot of different perspectives and put a lot of political capital on the line even had his own dad thinking he was making a mistake and busting the budget on a on a vanity project that's right and that is the key to kennedy's leadership he did see all sides and the one that impressed me the most that i didn't realize was how often he would give speeches talking about the spin-off technology of the Apollo program. He would go to San Antonio, Texas, um, and talk before a massive crowd and say, do you realize by us trying to go to the moon, we're getting, you know, CAT scan and MRIs, heart defibrillators, kidney dialysis machines. He would just talk about space medicine and the spin-off technologies. He would do this all over the place on all whether you know telecommunication satellites and talk to a communications group. So he became a salesperson for space exploration. And Kennedy was right. Today there you know we have thousands of satellites in space. Uh, people are worried about traffic jams. It is a robust business. The private sector is now deeply engaged, most famously with Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin and Elon Musk with SpaceX. But there are other – India is deeply involved with um, you know, lunar exploration, um, as is Israel, Brazil, Japan. It's become a global phenomenon. Kennedy early on saw that that's where the game was headed, and he provided the proper uh, stewardship and leadership to get us at least through the 1960s. But since the 1970s and the Apollo program was canceled, uh, we've only been doing things in a kind of low-key way. It has not been robust. We've had setbacks. The International Space Station hasn't captured the imaginations we thought. The Mars rover that's there now that um, Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech Pasadena put up. It ha- attracted attention and covers the National Geographic and IMAX films, but it didn't get as large as one would have thought. And then, of course, there are disasters like the Challenger, which is most famous for Ronald Reagan's mournful speech, uh, where we had dead Americans. Um, and so it just hasn't found its groove. And the hope would be for people that care about space is that the 50th anniversary at least got the country realigned to considering the future in space exploration. And finally, Douglas Brinkley, I just want, to t- want you to tell the story of how you came to interview Neil Armstrong. Um, I understand you tried to 
you put in the request years earlier, were rebuffed, and you finally got to do it as part of an oral history. Um, but then you were well, that, worried. That's that, right. I grew up yeah. in a town in Ohio, Perrysburg, and it wasn't that far from Wapakoneta, Ohio, where Neil Armstrong was from. I made a request uh, to talk with him, an interview. I had written a couple of books that were well-reviewed, and I got a polite rejection note saying I don't do interviews, and uh, you know um, maybe there'll be something down the line. I forgot about it, and years went by until I got a telephone call where I was asked to do his official oral history interview for NASA in Houston at the Johnson Mann Space Center. Uh, the date we had booked was late September of 2001, and uh, lo and behold, 9-11 happened. I thought for sure with airspace um, all shut down that my interview was canceled, but uh, Armstrong wouldn't cancel it, and he flew his own airplane from Cincinnati to Houston. I was living in New Orleans teaching at Tulane, and uh, I drove I-10 and met there, and we spent an entire afternoon, and I got to ask all the questions any reporter or historian would have liked to have asked him. And and what a what a value and a service to have that recorded. The famously reticent uh, uh, first man to walk on the moon to have that interview to, to draw on. Uh, Douglas Brinkley, the book is American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy, and the Great Space Race here in the 50th anniversary of that uh, of that moon mission. Thank you, Professor Brinkley. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that'll do it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Our thanks to the entire Powerhouse Politics team, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, Susie Liu, Trevor Hastings, and all the gang. We'll be back next time with another edition of Powerhouse Politics.